welcome back to the Accelerators Podcast. We are radiation oncologists, Drs. Matt Spraker, Simil Parikh, and Anna Lauschus, and we're bringing you oncology news and views with guests from all over the field. Note, the discussions on this show are not medical advice, and they represent our own opinions and not those of our employers. And now, on with the show. Hi, this is Simil Parikh, uh, Medical Director at Lake Huron Medical Center and one of the co-hosts of the Accelerators podcast. We have a very special episode. It's our first global episode, and we have uh, guests from uh, the UK and India and also from America, of course. Uh, I'll let the other uh, hosts and guests introduce themselves. I'm uh, Matt Spraker. I'm a radiation oncologist uh, and one of the Accelerator's co-hosts. I'm coming from Denver, Colorado. And I'm Anna Brown, uh, one of the other Accelerator's co-hosts, and I'm coming to you from community practice in Wisconsin. I'm Alison Tree. I'm an oncologist, a clinical oncologist in the Royal Marsden in the UK, um, and I practice prostate oncology largely. Um, nice to meet you all. I'm Himan Shinagar. I'm a radiation oncologist at Wild Cornell Medicine, New York Presbyterian, and uh, the best city in the world. Um, I mainly practice uh, uh, genital urinary uh, malignancies with a tremendous focus on prostate cancer. Um, hi, I'm Vedang Murthy. I'm a radiation oncologist at Tata Memorial Hospital in Mumbai, India, and I uh, practice GU radiation oncology, all things GU. Uh, not only prostate, uh, bring it on. <laughs> so the genesis of this episode was my visit to India a few uh, few weeks ago. I returned a few weeks ago, and I got to spend some time at Tata Memorial with Dr. Murthy. Um, it was really interesting to see how some things were very similar and some things were very, very different. And um, one of the things we saw there was uh, prostate SBRT. And I thought it'd be a fun episode to kind of go over how we do it, how they do it, what we have in common, what we have different. And I remember one of the things that Dr. Murthy said when we were seeing patients is that we tend to see more advanced patients in, uh, at their center because they don't do much PSA screening or as extensively as we do. And I kind of wanted to see what is being done um, typically in India and as well as the UK. And just and then we can also talk about uh, what's happening in our communities that we practice in, uh, as far as the Americans. So, um, uh, Alison, would you like to start? That's fine. So we, in the UK, we don't have a formal screening program. It's been reviewed a couple of times by the NHS, the healthcare organization in the UK, um, and has not yet been approved. Um, there are moves and discussions about whether we should change that now, because obviously the risks of screening and the risks of overdiagnosis are much less now. So I, I think it's an, an evolving story, but most of the patients we see get diagnosed sort of by accident through a well-man check or a random PSA done for incidental reasons. And so um, just like Vedang, we don't have uh, a formal screening program. And in, at Tata Memorial or in India, um, you, you had mentioned that same thing. So um, is it similar? Yeah. Most patients just show up with it? Um, so uh, prostate cancer is not really a public health problem here. Uh, our incidence is much lower than yours. Uh, it's about five to six per hundred thousand. So clear, clearly we are doing something right in terms of uh, probably what we are eating or how we are living. 
but we are getting there uh, it's it's rising rapidly but screening is nowhere uh, 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 in the picture because it's not a public health problem um patients just show up when they are uh, symptomatic uh, most often very advanced and i think our estimate is about 50 to 60% of the patients present with metastatic disease clearly there is a need to do focused or uh, you know some kind of a targeted screening uh, we are thinking about it but i don't think we are there yet um, we are educating and discussing with all the urologists and community uh, practitioners to do a psa when at least when the patient is early symptomatic uh, to start off and this is a very timely uh, issue because just this weekend day after tomorrow is our hospital's evidence based Medi- ebm that's evidence based medicine meeting annual meeting uh, coinciding with our hospital day and the topic is screening and one of them is uh, prostate cancer so we are having a whole afternoon on on this issue can i ask for both of you does is so in the us there's kind of recently whoops sorry in the us recently there's been um this narrative that like we, you know there was a lot of psa screening there was concern for harm and then psa screening kind of decreased a little bit with um we have a government agency that makes recommendations that aren't always followed but um they do impact primary care and so they sort of recommended a little softer and and screening went away a little bit and then just recently we've seen that play out with worse cancer outcomes for prostate cancer in in the last couple of years in these reports that come out each year in the US has that narrative whether it's true or not but i think people are talking about it here has that impacted the way that it might be viewed in india or the uk or is it kind of you guys don't pay attention much to what's happening in the us no no I, I think we very much pay attention and certainly it took the wind out of the sails of those that were trying to campaign for the UK to start screening when the US backtracked on its screening position so it absolutely had an impact um but I think now because our diagnostic pathway is completely changed now everyone gets an MRI pre biopsy those that have a favorable MRI don't even get a biopsy so that's why I was saying I think the risks the risk benefit ratio has changed right so yeah. it probably needs to be assessed again uh same here it, it, it we do follow it it's uh, it's it's made news uh, and we have seesawed a little bit it's probably added a little spice to uh, some of the screening talks and debates but i think that's what it is up till now uh, uh what about uh himachu do you mind kind of review what we're doing here in um i guess locally in the new york metro yeah i mean just in uh, new york and the states in general right uh, we have very different populations uh, among the patients we see from different parts of the geography right so i practice both in manhattan and brooklyn and access to care is very different in each of those boroughs so i wouldn't say we have heavier uh, psa screening necessarily in manhattan but we do um compared to brooklyn so in brooklyn we definitely see more advanced cases um that don't come off screen detected prostate cancer or at least um their psas are much higher um at the time of biopsy and imaging uh and you know like matt sort of alluded to um you know we we have multiple agencies uh, that are recommending things between the uh united uh, states Coronavirus Task Force, the American Cancer Society, obviously the Prostate Cancer Foundation. So, uh, which guidelines do you follow? And this goes beyond prostate. I know we're talking about prostate cancer here, but from breast screening, mammography, uh, everything. So, um, you know, just the latest ACS reports came out showing uh, increased incidence of prostate cancer with increased incidence of metastatic disease being diagnosed uh, with a 4.5 percent increase since 2011. So, uh, we've sort of gone backwards in terms of how we uh, are being able to manage this. um and so the guidelines are changing 
Um, you know, uh, similarly, you alluded to this earlier, we're doing too much and now we're probably doing a little too little. Uh, and it's about, you know, sort of that shared decision making that we hear a lot about, you know, have the discussion with the patient as to the benefits of screening and then what you do with the screen, right? You get a PSA check, but it doesn't necessarily mean, okay, you go on to MRI biopsy. What does that mean? What the life expectancy of that patient is? Uh, what the competing risks are. So, uh, you know, my personal philosophy is, you know, check the PSA, but then it doesn't necessarily mean PSA equals the gestalt of things that come afterwards, uh, because that's going to be better uh, selective in terms of, you know, who do we biopsy, who do we not, uh, and then sort of following that PSA. But, you know, finding a first PSA at 20 is just just too, probably a little bit too later than any of us are comfortable with in, in that uh, patient. So, um, and, you know, with, with that, you know, depending upon your uh, ethnicity, your family history, all of that comes into play in terms of getting that PSA check in, what to do uh, after that. So, you know, everyone thinks that get a PSA check, knee jerk, this is what happens afterwards. That's not necessarily the best practice of medicine. And you sort of have to talk to that patient uh, as to what the benefits and risk of acting on that PSA are. Yeah. And it's it's interesting. <clears throat> uh, screen, screening is a public health tool. And it, I think like early on in your training, you kind of think of it as something that might be cost effective, but it's not always cost effective. It could be the opposite way. And if you, I think that's what happened in the late nineties or mid to late nineties, when PSA screening picked up here, it ended up treat, we ended up treating many, many patients who didn't need treatment. There was a letter to the editor in the New York times that the guy that had the PSA, uh, PSA testing, uh, that invented it said he wished it hadn't gone as far as it as it did um but yeah the pendulum swings the other way at times and we're seeing kind of a return to think about targeted screening and as you guys mentioned mri <laughs> use of mri which has its own cost as well you know it's 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 challenging uh i think it is very challenging speaking of cost of care that was something that was uh that's always been interesting to me having only practice in this system we we know what we have here um I, when I spent time with, uh, with, with Badang at Tata Memorial, I realized that it was a much more open discussion uh, about costs. And I, I mentioned on a, on a recent podcast that um, when counseling a patient for ADT, Dr. Murthy had mentioned, you know, it's probably just going to be just, it's just going to be as effective to get castration as it is to pay X thousand rupees per month for the shot. And I had never heard an American physician mention that as an option. Um, just uh, so other than that, like, uh, would you mind speaking a few minutes just about cost of care and how much the patient is sort of on the hook for and how that uh, relates to how you how you manage patients? Uh, so, yes, I think uh, Indians in general are very cost conscious. Uh, you will find them bargaining everywhere. You know that the famous Indian bargain so we love we love a bargain and i think that's kind of hardwired we 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 love that uh, that comes in our medical practice as well uh, so in prostate cancer uh, as far as orchidectomy is concerned i think patients are still open to it they they are very open to it we offer it to all our patients with metastatic prostate cancer all of them and i suspect about 30 40% of them accept it uh, and we offset that cost by adding, uh, say, a generic abiraterone, uh, which 
probably uh, you know it it comes to the same thing then uh, for two three four years or whatever is needed so that's actually a very useful strategy for us um so uh, most of the patients pay out of pocket a large majority there are a number of uh, schemes from the state and uh, central government uh, but they that is limited in its uh, in the in the amount of money that they get clearly they don't get everything so a large amount is still out of pocket um, so we are very cost conscious that way do you think cost is the main driver for patients picking that orchiectomy or how do they um i mean just compare just your opinion about how they um feel after they undergo that versus the adt um, medication, um, because I would say that, you know, we, we are very biased towards ADT medication in the U S, but I wouldn't say that men like it. Right. So it's not like a good experience for them. Um, yeah. uh, cost is a lot of it. Um, many of them have also told me about the convenience of it. It's just one time they don't have to take the injection and nobody has actually come and said that, look, we feel different in terms of after having our testicles removed. So I don't think that's ever come up, although I have never asked that uh, directly. It's never come up in, in, in our conversation. So uh, maybe you guys should try it a little more. So what about the actual treatments themselves? Do you find yourself having to run the numbers for this many fractions or this type of treatment or this having image guidance or anything like that? Or is that kind of a package? Is it a package for each patient? Uh, in general, uh, in India, the, the, the cost costing is based on either if you're receiving 3D CRT is one package, uh, IMRT is a separate package, and image guidance is a slightly higher package. Uh, some people offer SPRT at a slightly higher package, but we don't do that in our hospital. Uh, image guidance and SPRT essentially is the same, although the Although the burden to the hospital in terms of logistics is probably much reduced with SBRT than uh, the regular image-guided four or five weeks of treatment. Uh, so it is those three tiers of uh, uh, costing that we generally have, in, in, uh, even in the private sector. Uh, and the cost is about 30-40% higher for each uh, tier. What about the patients on the public side or that can't? afford care how do they because I, I know our, you were treating them <laughs> we saw them getting treatment yeah yeah so in our hospital the, the because it's a it's a government hospital uh, highly it's funded by the central government of india uh, the treatment is highly subsidized for uh, uh, a public patient there is a cost but it is about uh, uh, it's about 300 pounds uh, for uh, sbrt which is all right for many people and even if they're struggling with that, uh, we help them with NGOs and other uh, CSR and other funding that comes to the hospital. So uh, that's not an issue. So just a conversion, quick conversion. That's that's something like three hundred fifty bucks uh, for yeah. the entire or thirty thousand rupees. Yes. Yeah. So that's uh, shows a big difference in pricing. Uh, uh, but it I, is subsidized. Mind you, it is subsidized. The, the on the private side or in the corporate world, uh, the a, a typical IGRT prostate or an SBRT would be about uh, two and a half to three thousand uh, US dollars. 
still, that's still, it's like, uh, you know, that's you, you may, you probably are aware of our prices and it's pretty, um, no, but pretty this amazing. is out of pocket and it's still, uh, quite steep for a lot of the patients. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the per capita income is around for the nation is what 2,500 or 3000 us dollars per, per person. So, I mean, it's, it's a staggering amount for many patients. Allison, it's, uh, I'd like to talk about it in the UK, which is very different in terms of patient costs. Yeah, absolutely. So we 95% or maybe more of our um, healthcare is delivered on the NHS, which is a publicly funded healthcare system. So the patient pays zero uh, for the treatment that they're offered, whether that's drugs, radiation or, or whatever cost it is, um, which is brilliant. And that's wonderful to work in. There are some restrictions. We can't do exactly what we want all the time. So radiotherapy in particular is, is nationally commissioned, we call it. So uh, we don't have complete free reign to treat everyone we like with 10 oligomets and go to town and then treat them again the next month. So there are some restrictions. Some of them are frustrating, but largely for prostate radiotherapy um, within evidence based practice, we can do what we want. Um, I, I didn't do any. I can't remember the last time a patient had an orchidectomy. Yeah. <laughs> can I, so can I ask, it. I was going to ask really quick. Do, so these um, restrictions or protocols are these things that are like kind of down at, at the service line level. And so inside the clinic, are there rules about how you treat and, and pathways that you have to follow? Or is there kind of freedom yeah. of the of the clinician to kind of work within guidelines sort of the way that we do in the in the US? Um, so, so we can work within the UK commissioning guidelines so for example at the moment technically prostate sbrt is only allowed on protocol i think that's going to change very quickly now um but uh, at the moment and certainly over the last 10 years you can't get prostate sbrt outside of a clinical trial in the uk so things that have not yet got five-year oncological outcome data we can't just start implementing um, and there are restrictions on oligomets for example we can now treat metachronous oligomets but we can't treat synchronous so that's just one of those strange idiosyncrasies but so yeah, there are some strange rules, if you like. But but when you have a patient with oligomats, you can choose the fractionation, so to speak, if it's within a range of what's reasonable yeah. and evidence-based. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So okay. that we have a little bit of more freedom in that scenario. Yeah. Okay. Um, Himachu, do you kind of want to talk about be our be our spokesperson for what the American system's like? Yes, uh, yes, I'll speak on behalf of all 50 states um, and practices. So, uh, you know, Matt Simmel and Anna knows, you know, a lot of our restrictions are a little bit transient depending upon the provider, right? So whether it's Medicare or private insurance, uh, they sort of dictate on what you're, quote unquote, allowed to do or not allowed to do. Uh, that being said, I think we have a lot more liberties here um, than uh, Vidang or Allison have um, in their countries. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's still evidence-based and a lot of us do a lot of peer-to-peer -peer phone calls to get approvals for things um, that might be considered um, outside of, you know, major guidelines. Um, but that being said, uh, you know, I've had tremendous success at getting things approved. It's just, you know, talking to the insurance provider or whoever that peer is to get approval. Of course, we've had denials here and there. Um, but at the end of the day, I'd say, you know, it's, you know, I would say 99% of my practices SBRT um, um, because, you know, the data is there and, you know, yet as it continues to evolve, hopefully we see more uh, practitioners move in that. It's, you know, it's, it's both, you know, as long as it's oncologically uh, equivalent uh, as safe, if not better um, than standard fractionation uh, and honestly, healthcare dollars, it's, you know, 
creating less fractions is going to save uh, both the hospital uh, and the provider, whoever that provider is, right? Whether it's uh, Medicare um, or private insurance uh, money over the long term. So, um, but it's very different. We don't have one national body of organization uh, dictating uh, what we do, but uh, I, I know all three Americans on the call uh, definitely uh, are frustrated with the uh, peer-to-peer process in terms of prior authorization uh, because you're, you know, you have the same patient, but depending on the provider, it's different care, and that's not probably the right thing. So, what, one other difference that I sense, and I'm not entirely clear on this for India, uh, Vidang, but is there a change in the income or reimbursement to the provider themselves based on the treatment selected? So, no, I don't think we have anything to do with fractionation. I don't think anyone does, not in our hospital, not in anywhere else in the country. It is based on the technique. Uh, Largely, it's based on technique. So those who cannot afford IMRT, they are offered 3D CRT. Those who cannot, uh, who, who can, they are offered IMRT. If they can afford, it's image guidance. And then SBRT is a, just a notch above that or around that area. So it's technique-based, not uh, fraction-based. Sometimes, you know, uh, uh, the same extension of our uh, Indian uh, mentality, uh, often patients are disappointed that there's just five fractions of the same cost. They, they don't feel they've got bang for their buck. So they are a bit disappointed often. <laughs> uh, Allison, how about you guys? Is there any difference in your income based on what you choose to treat or no in the nhs it doesn't matter how i treat the patients i get paid the same so some clinicians myself included do a little tiny bit of private work and obviously that's above my nhs salary over and above but yeah it makes no difference to me whether we treat the patient in five or 20 or one fraction not that we're doing that so our fraction discussions must sound absurd maybe <laughs> i think not really it's, it's market forces isn't it if you pay people more to do something they're more likely to do it so you, you can't you know although we do slightly knock some of your colleagues for doing 40 fractions you can't blame them really they make more money so if you give people perverse incentives what do you expect so incentives incentives work for a reason because they're incentive unless until we change the incentive market forces are market forces what what you see on social media Elson Vidang is not reflective of reality if you Look at the insurance data. The vast majority of Americans are getting 40 plus fractions. Yeah, um, that's not good. <laughs> and, and I'm not talking 50%. I'm saying like the vast majority. Um, yeah. But, yeah. But if everyone's happy with that, if everyone's happy with that system, and uh, of course, it's a slight uh, more inconvenience to the patient, but it's not worse than 20 fractions. So it's, I think it's fine if, if uh, I mean, it's what's the harm? Other than it's not that like your machines are bursting or hospitals are bursting at their seams to get more patients. So I think it's fine for us. A uh, big incentive is to increase the throughput. I think that's our, and I think it's the same for Allison as well. But if you have space and patients are okay to come every day and it's uh, it, the toxicity is the same. So I think outcomes are the same. So I look at it that way and everyone's happy. No, that's, that's reasonable. I think a lot of people do look at it that way. Um, yeah, you're right. Like seeing your clinic, I mean, the, the one I saw the public side and there was three Linux going, there was about, I counted, it was about 200 patients on treatment. Um, 
I'm not going to treat that many in a year. So it's just a very different situation. <laughs> the other thing is that I think it's important to point out too, that incentives, I think for us are not always um, uh, financial. Well, they're not always directly financial because there is competition, which I'm, I'm not sure how that works in both of your, your systems, but you know, radiation oncologists are sort of like a private company in a way where they have to compete for patients. And sometimes like where I work, there's actually several machines within a couple of miles of where I work that are different practices. And um, I've had a few friends that, that I never literally never thought about this during training, but I had a few friends that came out of training and they started treating prostate and they're sometimes choosing more fractionation because it minimizes the chance of having a bad toxicity, not by a huge amount, but I think if you read the data that, you know, it does minimize the chance. And when these patients go back to their referring physicians who originally sent them to radiation oncology, they report back how they feel. And there is some cultural challenges with radiation in the US, at least with just the way the public perceives it and referring physicians perceive it. And I have several friends that that pick extended fractionation because they want to make sure that they don't have someone have bad side effects and then go back and tell their doctor and then their doctor starts sending them somewhere else. And that's something that I never, ever thought of. Um, but I think when you're when you're in a practice, um, as was kind of mentioned, it's not true for everybody. But when you're a practice where your income depends heavily on the number of patients you're treating, it's quite a risk to do, um, you know, procedures that might have a slightly increased risk of toxicity. If you do feel like your referring physicians are suspicious of radiation to begin with, which definitely happens um, uh, in the U.S. Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, I hadn't thought of that either, but I guess we put more primacy on the patient's choice over here. So you're you're right that Verdang's entirely right that 40 isn't worse than 20. It's just longer, right? So, um, so I think we would feel obliged to talk to the patient about the options and show them the data, talk through the data and say, you want to come for 40 days? You want to come for 20 days? You want to come for five days? And I can tell you 90% will say I'll come for five days, even if the toxicity is worse. So that would be our primary mover in terms of decision making. I mean, the reason Allison, myself, and others are leading five versus two trials is because even the five seems onerous to certain patients. Um, if I tried to tell a patient to come in for 45 days or potentially 20 days, they are going to go somewhere else because uh, prostate cancer, especially those with you know favorable intermediate risk, this is sort of a speed bump in their life uh, versus something that's going to be uh, competing mortality risk for them. And they're well aware of that. So um, they are looking to make some, have something that's convenient uh, with the similar side effect profile uh, that lets them get back to their life, whatever that life is, whether it's retirement life or their busy work schedules. And remember, you know, a lot of our patients and their caregivers are, you know, either helping them to get to the center or bringing them because they're coming from, for us, at least the tri-state, if not larger area, um, there's no way a patient from, let's say, Connecticut, which is, you know, few, you know, like 100 miles away, not even that, is going to come in here for 45 sessions, but they want, you know, quote unquote, expert care. I actually, I do this, I have the same, I take the same approach in my clinic where I highly value patient autonomy and patient choice, and I'll present the data to them. And I really struggle to have people pick anything other than 28 fractions, um, but it's, which is kind of like our version of 20. I, my practice, we don't do 20, we do 28, but, but I think, um, you know, no one picks 44 because it's just why go longer. And then at least for me, I do tell people that, at, you know, SBRT is, I guess, less proven, although I'm very comfortable doing it. Um, and so most people kind of want like, you know, the bread and butter, what, what most people do and in, in middle of the road. And that's kind of what people do pick. I haven't treated a f over 40 fraction like in, in years. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I have colleagues that say, well, I give, <clears throat> I give them, you know, the the unbiased uh, options, and ninety five percent choose forty four fractions, and I tell them then clearly that's not a <laughs> unbiased discussion because that shouldn't happen. Um, I want to switch gears to research. Um, I am just in awe and fascinated uh, by what comes out of both of your institutions, Allison and Bedang. Uh, if it's from Marsden or if it's from Tata, I'm going to read it. It's going to be important. It's going to be well-written. It's going to have good stats. It's going to likely impact what I do day to day. And I'm being careful. I mean, I'm not trying to insult Himanshu or our American uh, Radonk friends, but the impact of what's coming out of the UK, Europe, and India, which it's a source of amazement to me and pride that uh, a country with the resources that it does is producing just to say it again, impactful research. And I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on why that might be that you guys are doing such great work and uh, what it would take for us to catch back up to that. Wow. I think I'm still blushing. Thanks very much for the compliment. But um, yeah, I, I, well, I don't know what Vedang, Vedang's worked with us before, so he might have some unique perspectives on both healthcare environments. But I think we are sort of, it's in our bottles as babies that in the UK that you have to do research, right? Because that's the only way we change things for our patients. There's, we can't change it by commercial pressures. We can't, we can change it to a certain extent by patient advocacy, but the way you really affect change is by producing high quality research that proves that something else is better than what you're currently doing. So we kind of have that inbuilt incentive. And also I'm lucky enough to be truly standing on the shoulders of giants. We've, the Marsden and the ICR have built up a fantastic uh, wealth of knowledge and trials, which carry on paying dividends for 10, 20 years later. So um, I've, I can't take the credit for any of that at all. Um, but we've certainly been brought up to carry it on. And part of that success is because the whole UK joins in, right? Pacey had 45 UK centres recruiting. You can recruit massive trials and answer very small benefit questions without those kind of numbers. So I, I think we're just lucky to work in that, that environment and have great partnerships across the country. Why do you think your patients are more amenable? Are, we have some somewhere around, uh, someone can correct me, but I believe one, one to 2% of American patients uh, submit to a trial. Um, and I'm curious. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I I don't know really. I guess it's because it's normal because we have a lot of patient advocacy to um, reach out to other patients and say, you know, we all know that outcomes are better on a clinical trial, right? So if if for no other reason than self interest, go into the trial because you'll be carefully monitored. You'll be, you know, the, you'll have a lot of attention on you. Um, but I think we we have a, a trial pretty much for every single patient that walks through the door. So everyone gets offered a trial and you don't not everyone wants to join a trial. That's fine. No one has to join a trial, but we just have lots of opportunities. So we tend to get a lot of patients in. And when you have the discussion with the patient to enter a trial, is it um, is there any sort of inducement or benefit to the patient other than the knowledge that they're going to contribute to the world? Um, no, there's no financial payment. So for, for most trials, if the patient has hardship and they need to have additional visits, we can pay, help pay transport costs and stuff. And, um, but apart from that, it's either for their own self-interest, because they might want what's being offered experimentally or for the good of humanity going forward. 
Can I actually ask, so is that, so the hardship thing where you're giving patients support for the extra costs of participating in a trial, is that a common thing that patients will have that support or is it really a small proportion of patients that I guess qualify for it? Yeah, um, it, it's very standard in pharma trials because obviously a lot of pharma trials include lots of extra scans and visits. Um, so we've tried to include that for radiotherapy trials. The slight problem is most of our my trials involve coming less often than the standard. So obviously they not yeah you know, we don't pay out a vast amount of money because actually mostly we're making it more convenient for them. But yeah, it should be um yeah we have it where we need it. Yeah, that's it's interesting because that's been a sort of a controversial issue, I think, in the US where I think I mean, I'm a big, a big proponent of that. And I think that there's more and more people writing about financially supporting patients who are participating in trials. But there's at least for us, there's, I guess, ethical concerns. Or that's the, the kind of counter argument about about why that's maybe not more prominent in the US. Yeah, no, you certainly don't want to be paying them to go into the trial, not in this right. scenario. anyway. But um, if it, you're just reimbursing them costs that they wouldn't otherwise pay, I think to me, at least that's ethically different. I wanted to try to slip in one question too. So something like, so Pace A just came out, lots of talk about that on Twitter. Was yeah. Do you feel like that there is challenges in rolling to a trial like that due to the physician bias or lack of equipoise? Um, I, I think, <laughs> yeah, that one, I think we could probably never run in the United States. I just can't envision a trial like that ever being completed here because I just don't know that people would put put patients on it. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. And it, it was a real slog in the even in the UK because of exactly what you say. The first person to see the patient is the urologist, right? So we all have to counter that and give the other side of the debate. Um, and a lot of patients come in with a very fixed idea about whether they want surgery or radiotherapy, and that, and that's fine. So, but the the biggest success we had with Pace A with one of our research nurses, if she got in there first before either do- doctor, then the patients about half of them went into the trial, which was better than any of us achieved on our own. So. No, that's, I mean, congratulations, honestly, because that's really a, a remarkable study. And I think it's, it's, we're very lucky in the US to be able to have, I think there's numerous studies that have been run in other countries that have helped shape our practice that probably could not have been completed here. And so we, we definitely am very thankful for that. Um, and I, and to your point, uh, I think there's a lot to learn about that comment that the research nurse going in first makes a big difference. And, and we probably could learn a lot from that too. So, how about uh, perspective from India, Vedang? Yeah, so uh, uh, Simul, I think uh, what you said, uh, research coming uh, from India and from UK, I think uh, it's not from all the country. I think our hospital stands out in that regard. Okay. Uh, that And that's, I think, the big difference. Alison has the whole army of uh, all the centers with her and we do not have that. And I think that's the big difference. Within our hospital, I think it's almost like uh, it's a mini, you know, there's a lot of trials going on and a lot of interesting questions, some funding available. So that environment in the hospital is pretty much like the UK. Uh, But I think it's not a countrywide thing. It's improving, but uh, nowhere close to where it should be. So that is the first thing. Uh, As far as incentive is concerned, I think uh, the one reason why we have such a uh, fantastic uh, culture of clinical trials, it's again, it's it's been ingrained right from the time I was training. I think uh, our institute and our leaders have uh, made it a point that research and good quality and practical research should be a part of our day to day work. And uh, we are actually graded. Uh, in our uh, in our promotional and, and other uh, uh, you know uh, promotions for uh, at least some part of it is based on what research you're doing 
uh, and we do get a little bit of what we call as intramural funding. So we are started off, the hospital provides a little bit of a grant for particularly for the more interesting and particularly the randomized trials. So that really helps to kickstart uh, a trial before you look for other funding. So that's a huge advantage that we have within the hospital. Um, and as far as patient incentive is concerned, uh, one thing that Alison, uh, the patients in the UK, uh, is different is that those who go in the test arm uh, here, their treatment uh, gets waived off or it's it's funded by the trial. So that incentive is there. And that's written in the in, informed consent form that if you are in the standard arm, you'll have to pay for the treatment. And if you're in the test arm, so I think, uh, so that I think 50% is there, it's still a good bet to to take. So I think a lot of patients do take that. Yeah. But again, they, they are free to choose. Um, uh, probably the consenting process is the same as the UK. I think uh, I must have consented about 200 patients on the CHIP trial, I'm sure, or probably more. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it is the same. Uh, patients coming and, you know, you talk to them about uh, 60 gray and 74 gray and 57 gray. And after two minutes, he says, doc, you tell me, you where's the, you just give me the consent form. I'll sign it. You tell me where do I have to sign, you know? <laughs> uh, so it, it's, it, you do talk to them uh, in more detail in the UK, it's slightly less here, but I think we are all the same finally. Wise words from Dr. Murthy to close out part one of radiotherapy for prostate cancer around the globe. Join us next week for the conclusion of this exciting discussion. Thanks for listening. 